Merry Christmas. It's very merry when you um, see how the Bible fits together and how many promises God's made to us that He fulfills in Christ. And so that's what we want to look at today. I've already heard from people this week, seven points. Better than 70. Yeah, there's seven quick ones. Let's uh, take a look at what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 6. You'll remember the people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt. They're groaning under the weight of their Egyptian slavery. They're in bondage and the Lord comes to Moses and He says a number of things. And then Moses speaks to the people of God. So beginning in verse 2, Exodus chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The man was wealthy. He had everything he could possibly want, except his hearing had gone. He couldn't hear well at all. And so after a couple of months, he went to the doctor, asked if he could get him set up with hearing aids, and he did. A couple of months later, he came to the doctor, and the doctor said, how are they working for you? He said, oh, it's great. I can hear what's happening in the next room. The doctor said, that must be great. Your family must love it. He said, they really don't know. I haven't told them. In fact, I've changed my will three times. <laughs> Aren't you glad God isn't like that? By the time you get to Exodus chapter 6, God has heard the people's groanings. He's heard their pain and their complaint. They're in bondage. In fact, he's heard them at chapter 6 three times groaning. And instead of changing his will, he confirms it. C.S. Lewis one time said that God whispers to us in our pleasure and he shouts to us in our pain. That's what's happening in chapter 6. One time Charles Spurgeon was asked by his preaching students if he make, might make a comment on God's question to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember the question? Adam had sinned and he went into the trees and he was hiding and so the Lord comes into the garden and he said, Adam, where are you? And I don't know what the preaching students wondered about when they asked Spurgeon to elaborate on that, but you know what he said? He said, when you preach that text, when you preach that question, don't preach it as if God were a policeman coming to make an arrest. Preach it as though God were a father looking for his child that had left and hadn't returned for a long time. That's exactly the way God comes to Moses. He says, in effect, I've heard their groaning, I've heard their cries, I remember my covenant 
the covenant I made with them. If, you're, if you were here in the fall, you know we've studied the book of Nehemiah, and in that book, God rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. It's a miracle. And one of the things the people of Israel do, the people of Jerusalem, they come before the Lord and they make a covenant with Him. You may remember, they make six promises to God. And within a matter of weeks, they've broken every one of the promises. They prove that they're just like their forefathers in Egypt. They're faithless. They're sinful. They're needy. And yet look what the Lord does. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their faithlessness, in the midst of their need, the Lord comes and He makes seven promises to them. And the amazing thing is, these seven promises are a repeat of the promises He made to Abraham 700 years earlier. When you study the Bible, when you read it, and you see that God makes the same statements throughout history, you should mark that. It should get your attention. 700 years before Moses, God comes to Abraham and makes seven promises. 700 years later, He comes to Moses and repeats those promises. A thousand years later, He comes to, to Jeremiah and He again repeats those same promises, those same covenant promises. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one say to another, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So think of it. What God does for Abraham, He does for Moses. What God does for Moses, He does for Jeremiah. What God does for Jeremiah, He does for every child of God. In the midst of our need, in the midst of our faithlessness, in the midst of our longing and our pain, he comes and He makes His promises known with one critical difference. For them, they had to look forward to the fulfillment of the promise. For us, we simply have to look back and see how Jesus has fulfilled every one of them. You know the truth of Christmas? It is this. God has made you seven promises, and in Jesus Christ, He's fulfilled every one of them. So let's dig in and look at them. All seven of them. First, notice the deliverance. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Years ago, I asked a man to write his testimony, and he said he wrote this. I don't remember what happened the night I first met Jesus. I don't remember who was there or what was said. All I remember is when I left that place, I felt free. I was free of my guilt. I was free of my shame. I was free of my fear of death. Do you remember the first time you met Jesus? Do you remember the first time you had this sense of freedom from your sin and your shame and your guilt and your fear of death? You were like the guy in the book of Acts. Remember, he's lame and he's begging at the temple. 
Peter and John come by and the guy looks at them and says, can I have some money? And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And then Peter takes his hand and takes the man by the hand and stands him to his feet. And the Bible says, Luke tells us, he's a doctor, he says instantly his ankles and his feet became strong. And he went into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. He knew deliverance. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us spiritually. He's taken our guilt and our shame and our sin and our fear of death and he's put them away. Jesus has delivered us. There's an old hymn that captures our deliverance perfectly. It goes like this. Well may, well may my accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Second, notice He forgives us. Look at verse 6 again. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Now notice the freedom he's talking about here is not just freedom from sin, it's freedom from the bondage of sin, the enslavement of sin. Look what he says, you will no longer be slaves to them. One time a girl was, a young woman was being examined for church membership and one of the elders said, has Christ made a difference in your life? She said, oh yes, he's made a great difference. Then the elder said, do you still sin? She said, yeah, I sin. He said, well, if you sin before you knew Jesus and after you know Jesus, what difference does it make? She thought a minute and said, I think it's like this. Before I loved Him, I ran after sin. I was hooked by it. But now I run away from it. Even though sometimes I fall as I'm running. See, that's the fruit of divine forgiveness. 4,000 years ago, God came to Abraham and He said, I will forgive you. I will break the addiction to sin. And that's what Jesus does. And third, notice the promise of redemption. Look at the end of verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Now, we use the word redeemed a lot, but we don't define it. It means to buy back. So, who is buying? God is. What is He paying? What is the debt? It's the debt for sin. So, these people are slaves in Egypt. And the reason they're slaves is because they're living as the Lord of their own lives. And look what the Lord says. With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will redeem you. I'll buy you back. And from history, we know what He does. He says, I will accept a substitute for your sin. You can kill the lambs, and so they do. And then He brings them through the sea. Remember what He says to Moses? Stretch out your arm. Stretch out your staff. And He does. And when He stretches it out, the waters begin to separate, and the people of Israel walk through on dry ground. But that's just a foreshadowing of what God will do on the cross. Remember what Jesus does on the cross? He stretches out both arms. 
And He takes all of the judgment that you and I deserve upon Himself. You see, what God is saying is, my deliverance and my forgiveness are not without cost. 4,000 years ago, God made a promise to redeem us. And in Jesus Christ, He has once and for all. Fourth, notice how quickly these are going, Marty. (laughs) Marriage. He promises us marriage. Look at verse 7. And I will take you to be my people. Now, every time you see that in English, I will take. That's one word in Hebrew, and it's always associated with marriage. As in, I will take a wife. I will take a wife. I'll take a husband. Think of what God means there. Not only will I deliver you and forgive you and redeem you, I will remarry you. Think of who he's saying that to. His bride, who is totally unfit, totally unworthy, and yet he's willing to shower his deepest affection on us. Years ago, a woman called and she asked for an appointment. She told me why. Most people don't. She said, I want to come and talk about my husband. I thought, oh, brother. We made it. And as soon as she got there and she sat down and opened her mouth, I knew that all my fears were without any merit because she said, I can't believe he loves me. Have you ever known a husband and wife and you thought about how in the world does she love him and he love her? I have a friend in Florida who has a series entitled The Bride of Christ. It's a preaching series. His first sermon is, She is Ugly. We are. And yet the Lord doesn't think of us that way. He says, not to me, she's more beautiful than you will ever know. 4,000 years ago, He made a promise to take us as His bride. And in Christ, He keeps that promise. Fifth, notice His fifth promise, protection. Look at verse 7 again. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You know what it means to know that He's really the Lord our God? It means to know that He's got everything handled. Who could have brought him through the Red Sea but God? Who could have brought his people through the Red Sea and then when Pharaoh and his armies get into that sea, who could it be that would bring that water back into its place and drown them all? Who but God could have led them in the wilderness by a cloud by day and fire by night? Who but God could have rebuilt that wall in Jerusalem in 52 days? The answer is nobody but the Lord. No one could have defended such a weak and fickle and poor and stiff-necked people but God. You know, you ask a lot of people, what's grace? They'll say it's unmerited favor. I love what A.W. Pink said, grace is often defined poorly by Christians. It's far more than unmerited favor. To feed a tramp who is hungry and has no food, that is unmerited favor, but it's scarcely grace. 
let's say that same tramp robbed me and beat me and then I fed him, that would be grace. Grace is favor shown in the face of positive demerit. That's what the Lord does. 4,000 years ago, God made a promise to pour out His grace on those who would repeatedly rob Him of His place in their life. That's you and that's me. He promised not only to deliver us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to marry us. He promises to love us forever and protect us. And He does it all in Jesus. Sixth, He promises us eternal life. Look at verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, He's talking more than just a little strip of land in the Middle East. You know that strip between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea? Look how the Bible describes it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of peace and rest. It's a land of joy and abundance. It's a land in which one will say to his neighbor, no longer know the Lord because they'll all know me. Where is that place? It's not in the Middle East. It's in the new heaven and new earth. He promises us eternity in His presence. 4,000 years ago, God made a promise to give us everlasting life. And in Jesus, He keeps that promise. And then there's one more promise here in this text. The promise of joy. Look at verse 8 again. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The word possession means an everlasting inheritance. You know, in life, if you're inheriting something, you're joyful, but it's only for a time because you're going to go the way of all flesh. The chances are one out of one that you and I will die. (laughs) What God is saying behind every one of my promises is a singular promise, and that singular promise is, you will be with me and you will have my joy. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? I bring you glad tidings of a great joy that will be to all kinds of people. Remember what Jesus said right before He went to the cross? He said to His disciples, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then a little later He said, You'll have sorrow now, but you will see Me again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. You know, in 1920, in England, there was a man who was studying to be a medical doctor and he had great promise. Everyone knew him in that country. His name was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was studying under the greatest surgeon in all of Great Britain. And everyone knew that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones would surpass him in the ability to do surgery. Then one evening, Lloyd-Jones was home and he received a knock on his door and he opened the door and there in front of him was a man who was a prominent surgeon in England. He knew him well. Lloyd-Jones invited him in and the guy just walked right by him. 
He went all the way into the library. He got one of the large leather chairs and put it right in front of the fireplace and sat down and stared at the fire. Well, John says he didn't say anything to me. He just sits in my house and stares at my fire. Lloyd-Jones later learned that that day that man had received word that his fiancée had been killed. He said, as I watched him stare at the fire for two hours, it shocked me. Not because his behavior was inappropriate, but because at that moment I realized that no matter how prominent you are, how well-respected you are. Your life is a vapor. And your future is shaky at best. And as I watched him look into the fire, I suddenly realized all of the vanities of life. And I heard the Lord speak to me. And in that moment, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I left medicine. And I determined to pursue Jesus with everything I had. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the greatest biblical preachers and commentators of the 20th century. He could have been a great doctor of medicine. He became a great doctor of letters of Scripture. You know, nothing is more important in your life than to pursue Jesus. All of God's promises are tied to Him. Every one of those seven promises covers the entire span of your life. The only question at Christmas is this. Are those promises for you? It's only in Jesus that we ever learn that answer. Because He's the only one who ever spoke the promise and then kept the promise. The meaning of Christmas is God fulfills His promises. I pray that they're for you and me. Think about that. Amen.